Hello, welcome to the CityWire Funds Fanatic podcast. My name is Gavin Lumsden and with me is my colleague Daniel Grote, editor of CityWire Funds Insider website. Every week we get together and have a chat about funds and investment trusts. Changed for this week's format, though, for the first time, we've got our guest. We have David Stevenson, who writes a weekly column for uh, both the Investment Trust Insider and Funds Insider websites. So many of you will know of him. He's a leading investment commentator, written for the Financial Times for many years, and also nowadays uh, an investment trust director as well. David, thanks very much for joining us. It's uh, good to see and hear from you. Thanks for inviting me on. Okay, no problem. Now, you you, you write the Adventurous uh, Investor uh, daily blog. Uh, People can find that at adventurousinvestor.com. I think that suggests that your your, your interest in a wide range of investment opportunities and asset classes, you're well known for covering uh, alternative assets, not necessarily always your enthusiasm for for stock markets, particularly uh, uh, in present conditions. But um, we're going to have a chat to you about your thoughts and your activities but i'm going to pass over to, to dan now who's going to uh, uh, ask you a few questions great thanks kevin hi david hi dan how are you you're all not bad yeah yeah not bad yeah i just wanted to delve straight in really and get your your view on on where markets are i mean you, you you've written about it um in uh in your columns on our on our website and your last column gave a, a pretty good pricey in that you know like many investors um you're not gung ho about markets. Neither do you feel that you know the the end is nigh. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I don't think the, I don't think we're about to go to hell in a handcart. Although you know our economy may be about to, but um, and and equally, as you said, I'm not particularly enthusiastic, um, and I'm quite high cash. So I'm probably net effective about fifty percent cash, um, and um, and some of the rest of that is also in stuff that either I can't sell because I'm a director or it's kind of in hedge funds or that kind of stuff. Um, so I am a bit cautious. The, the reality of it is that, that most of the gains in the market have been, until recently, have been really kind of chalked up by big mega cap US tech names or, or certainly the tech sector. And and I, I, I when, when the first big sell-off happened around the middle of February, I switched quite aggressively into a whole bunch of kind of tech-orientated stuff including Scottish Mortgage, which, you know, James Anderson's um, uh, fund, which is very tech orientated. And and I sort of rode that really all the way through to, gosh, when was that? Probably about the end of April now. And then I just looked at the valuations. That's crazy. You know, I mean, uh, I, you know, I'm not the only one who's noticed it. I mean, virtually everybody on the planet's noticed it. Um, some of the valuations are just bonkers. You know, I, we're sort of back to 1999, 2000, really. Um, and we've had a bit more of a kind of widespread rally in the last couple of weeks and there's even been talk about kind of value stocks coming back and i've certainly always run a kind of side pocket of what i call bounce back stocks um chief amongst them things like carnival uh easy jet that kind of stuff uh, and i watched them and occasionally bought them and, and they bounced back quite quite they bounced back quite aggressively um in june but even they've gone a little bit kind of off the boil in the last couple of weeks so it's an odd old market and I'm not going to add anything more than anybody else has said, which is I don't really understand how you can have such an expensive market when the economy is tanking and, and is likely to go even further down because we, we've not got to the edge of the furlough cliff yet in both the UK and the US. Um, with all sorts of other things that I'm not going to bother, you know, make, making obvious going on around us, I don't really quite understand it myself. Um, so, yeah, 
I mean, I, I'm sort of, I, I, I think I, I wanted to write a column which said, you know, how to invest for people who don't like investing at the moment. That's probably the way I put it. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that you made that switch into, and you mentioned Scottish mortgage, that switch into, into yeah. t- uh, as early as February. I mean, you know, we've seen since that tech has emerged as this you know, bizarre defensive asset uh, in the Corona yeah. crisis. Was that, did you have a, a mind towards that when you were moving into that sort of sector? Or? Yeah, no, no, I'm not going to claim any great prescience, but I just thought that, you know, frankly, you know, if the if the world if the world was going to hell in the handcart and what people were going to carry on spending their money on was they're probably going to spend their money on tech, weren't they? Um, and therefore, that was probably not a bad place to hang out, really. Um, and, and, you know, the, the likes of the Googles and the Facebooks of the world, they're bound to see, you know, massively increased traffic. I'm sure CityWire has seen massively increased traffic over the last two or three months as, you know, as more and more people, frankly, have a lot of more time on their hands and work from home or work from home with inverted commas. Um, so I know they don't claim any great prescience. I just thought it might be a more sensible place to hang out. Um, and also, I think, you know, when you're in a sell off, what you want to do is you want to go into stuff that's frankly the most profitable with the widest competitive moat against, you know, um, against uh, kind of margin erosion. And, you know, tech stocks do 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 tick that box. The problem is, though, that, I mean, prices have come bonkers. You know, I mean, Tesla's a classic example. And, you know, James Anderson is a great fan of Tesla. And, you know, I, I don't really have a great view on Tesla. You know, that's what I outsource to James Anderson for Scotch Mortgage to have a view on that. Um, but, but even I, I think that Tesla's a bit bonkers priced. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I just don't quite understand how, you know, uh, uh, the, um, Matt Levine, who's a fantastic columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, did a great piece which <laughs> to just say basically Tesla is the sum of all our hopes about the future. And it doesn't really bear much relationship back to practical valuations. And, you know, maybe that is what that is what will happen. But, but you know, history teaches us that eventually mean reversion kicks in and, and things find their true value. And, and that's probably what I think. Tech stocks were likely to do well. They did well. They've probably overdone it and they're probably a bit overpriced. I guess the issue with uh, buying stuff and making changes to, to your portfolio when stock markets are going through the extreme sort of bouts of volatility that we saw yeah. earlier this year is where you're getting the money from, you know, whether you're selling stuff that has fallen to, to buy other stuff that you think is, is going to do slightly better. But I guess in, in your case, it was you had that big cash position and, and that's what you started deploying in February. Yeah, I was already, I think even in the end of January, it was about 30% cash because I've always been a bit cagey. I've, been, I've thought that markets were a bit high anyway. Um, I, I wanted to invest more money in the UK, UK domestic equity market, which at the time, and probably still is the case, is undervalued. And I thought had better prospects than everybody else thought, particularly because most international investors are on a downer about the UK because of Brexit. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to make any views about Brexit, but I felt that that was that was a disproportionate reaction. Um, unfortunately, you know, you, you can now mount an argument for saying that the UK is probably going to also lag behind for the next six to 12 months because we have an unholy collection of stocks in things like, you know, resources companies, which which haven't been doing terrifically well. And, and you know, you can make an argument for saying that the damage caused by the excess deaths in the UK has had an impact on the UK domestic economy. And I know some economists certainly certainly on the left make that argument. Um, so I think, unfortunately, the bit of the bare argument against UK equities is being reinstated. But going back to what I was saying earlier on, um, so I, want, I was about 30% in cash anyway. Um, and then basically when the first kind of big bout came, I just literally just took a list down my uh, look at look down my list of ISA and SIP shareholdings and just said, 
because um, I actually still have a broker that I ring up. I mean, I know that's scary, um, but I, I had a broker. I, ring, I just sell everything. You know, I can sell. Um, just and I think it was about a week, and, and it was about a week after really markets began to really tank. So that probably be yeah, middle middle end of February. Um, and, and in case you ask me, why do I have a broker that I actually ring up and speak to as opposed to do online? I've actually found it quite a good discipline because he charges an arm and a leg. Yeah, he charges me a load of money. I therefore don't ring him up very often because I'm too stingy. Yeah. Um, so I, my turnover in my portfolio is extremely low normally because I, if I have to do it, it's going to cost me an arm and a leg. So I don't bother doing it. Um, so it's a good discipline to have. And of course, it falls over when you have to do a lot of trading. Um, so. Um, but it, and it's also well worth it because you can bounce ideas off people. You can say, you know, am I the only one who's buying Scottish mortgage at the moment? This will be end of February. And you can go, no, David, actually quite a lot of other people are. Um, and that's quite a helpful thing to, to do, actually. Um, so it's not, you know, although I'm a great believer in keeping prices low, and keeping fees down, actually sometimes spending a bit more money on getting the service is quite a good idea. But anyway, so just going back to answer your question directly. Yeah. So I went from about 30 percent cash to about 70 percent cash, then went back into the market. Uh, quite aggressively yeah and scottish mortgage has obviously turned out to be a very good buy i mean generally do you think you had a good coronavirus crisis in, in investment wise well um, yeah i hesitate to say good um uh not bad i mean look i look back at, I, I i remember doing a little i got on my notebook and um, I, it's a good exercise for everybody to do and i i did a kind of what did i feel my portfolio would go down to so what do i think my maximum drawdown would be and I think I penciled in rather ambitiously, I must say. Uh, I penciled in a kind of 45% peak to trough decline. Um, and then I might just bounce back to say down 35, 25%. I felt that I'd do all right if I'd done that. You know, it's the same kind of thing, you know, we'd have a good coronavirus if only 20,000 people died. Um, so, um, and, and actually, I just looked at my portfolios now, uh, and I've gone back to cash, by the way, to answer one of your up and coming questions. Um, I'm pretty much there where i was at the end at the beginning of february sort of roughly a minus i think on my sip i'm minus three percent on my one of my answers i'm minus four percent so that's not bad you know um you know i don't i'm, I'm not claiming any great presence um i just perfect i'm fairly happy with it because i thought i'd be looking at a minus 45 percent minus 35 minus 30 percent you know and if i'm honest with myself i still think markets should be 20 percent lower i mean i i found that it, in the teeth of the crisis, it got to a point where I just stopped. I just stopped looking at my portfolio yeah, because yeah, yeah. it was making it was making me panic, uh, yeah, and it was yeah. making me react to my investments in exactly the way that you're told that you shouldn't. Uh, and I think it was really about a week of that yeah. before bottom, and 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 then we started recovering. And then I felt emboldened enough to actually have a look. I didn't do anything. But yeah. I had a look at what was going on um, because it, it just got. It got quite scary. Um, I I just wonder where you sort of sit now because you you talk about sort of where you see markets going and that uh, that there is really still scope for a fall. Uh, I was looking back at what you'd written uh, in April around uh, the waves of the virus and not the waves of the virus yeah. itself, but the waves of its impact and its economic impact and its impact on stock markets. Uh, so you were talking about. The first immediate reaction, which obviously we had when stock markets fell. Uh, the second uh, reaction, which was really a, when there would be this realisation that the virus would peak and it would then fall uh, and there would be a, a bounce back in, in, in stock markets. 
So the third, where you have this after effect where the fallout, the economic fallout really starts to tell. Um, and that's the point where you were talking about, you know, maybe a 10 to 25% fall in, in stock markets. I mean, it certainly seems that we're there in, in terms of the economic impact, but we're certainly not there in terms of the stock market impact. Yeah, no, I, I personally think we're still early in the crisis. I mean, you know, I, I think that the, the bit I worry about <laughs> is that, and I did worry about it. I remember sitting there, like all of us did, you know, consuming much too much news information and news flow. And, you know, I, I found, I think I wrote about it, so I actually had to go and take a meditation app just to calm, calm me down because I ended up you know, staring at too many bloody news flows. Because um, it was, you know, and it's terrible for journalists, particularly because it's our job. You know, my missus would say, "Oh, darling, why do you just ignore it all?" And it's like, "Well, I can't. It's my job, actually." Um, so um, I, I think we're only just at the beginning of of both the next waves. The the first wave is the economic um, implications. Um, I get emails now from a lot of my hedgy friends pretty much daily about rumours they're hearing about defaults and insolvencies, everything from bloody shipping companies through to kind of banks. And we're only seeing the, the penny drop on, on a lot of those kind of knock-on implications. And I think they're only working their way through the system now. And all that's happened is, is the investors have said, well, you know, the Fed will pick up the bill. Well, yeah, I mean, the Fed will pick up the bill. But <laughs> but, but, but ultimately, as even people like The Economist have been arguing, you, you do have to look at bank balance sheets and wonder about, you know, how much, how much of a bill is this going to be? And then the second thing is, which I was always worrying about, uh, and I, I still am worried about, is the emerging markets, the developing world. You know, poor old Brazil is getting it in the neck. Next up is India. Um, and, you know, and, and this is, you know, terrible news on, on many, many levels. But look, just on a narrow level, unless the world intends to basically not fly anywhere between each country, yeah, um, we are all subject to the weakest link argument, yeah, which is that we may all think that we've conquered this nasty little bug, yeah, and we're in the clear. Well, we are in the clear until some other bastard decides to export it to us, yeah, or we import it, isn't that how we want to look at it? And we've already seen this happen. It's already happening in Australia. Um, you know, I, my son was over in Australia when the crisis was brewing up, and a couple of my Australian friends, oh, he's better off being in Australia because he's really safe here. And for about a month, yeah, that's true, until, of course, Melbourne broke up, broke out. Um, and, and the Chinese are having the problem. South Korea are having the problem. We'll have the problem. I, you know, I'm hearing rumours about the same out in Greece at the moment. And, and this thing ain't going away. Now, that doesn't mean you have to buy into the second wave argument that it's going to be massive numbers of people hitting the second wave in autumn, which may happen. Um, but you, you still have to accept that uh, either we're going to keep having these bouts, they are going to keep panicking people, and they're going to have a stock market reaction. So, um, and, and I just don't see any way out of that because we can't, we can't go into an autarkic world where none of us communicate with anybody. None of us you have flights going, ships going, or people moving... That's just not possible for a period of time beyond six months. You could probably do it for six months, but after that, it didn't work. Even New Zealand's having this debate. You're doing a fantastic job in controlling it. And now there's quite a lot of people in New Zealand beginning to say, well, hang on, we can't just lock up for the next two years, three years, because that is what we are facing. It ain't going away, yeah? And look, I might, the next man and woman would love there to be a vaccine, but I'm not holding them out of my hope for it um, anytime soon. And, and until we get it, we, we're stuck with it. Mm -hmm. And in terms of how that sort of plays out in in how you organise your own investments, uh, yeah, I guess tying into what Gavin was saying at, at the beginning uh, that your badge is the the adventurous investor, but that doesn't mean you're gung ho. Uh, you talked about you know having stocks like Carnival and, and EasyJet and having that 
pocket of um, mm. you know the, the 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 shares that you that have been beaten up and you, you hope to rebound. I mean, like, how does it how does it work? So, so that you that you mentally divide up your portfolio into bits that are meant to do different things. Yeah, fundamentally, that's it. Yeah, I, I, I you know, that you you look at it in two dimensions. You either look at it in the tax wrapper dimension, which is you know you have your SIP and then you have various ISAs. Yeah, but um, and then you look at it in another dimension is that I have like for instance, I've got uh, I've got a, an account with IG Markets stockbroking business for US equities. Yeah. Um, and I think this year I'm plowing all my ISA money into U.S. equities, probably foolishly based on everything I've said. Um, and then I have a, another pocket where I do bounce back stuff or I have another pocket where I do alternative stuff. And even within my ISA, I've got quite a lot of stuff which is really damn boring in one respect, but quite adventurous in another respect. What do I mean by that? Um, it's kind of like alternative stuff which really shouldn't go around the market too much because it's you know it, it, it has different correlations to stuff um so i've got pockets of stuff that's still sitting in there which hasn't really moved much at all in the last couple of years david just gavin here just uh very interesting to get you talking i just wonder what is your split between uh you know, direct equities and shares and uh and funds you know collective schemes uh that, that you know yeah that's I, I probably traditionally am about 80% funds, yeah, and about 10 to 20% equities, yeah. I'm probably a bit higher in equities at the moment because of the reason I said I've got some kind of targeted plays on things that I think are interesting. But I normally am funds. I'm not a very good stock picker. Um, I, I, I just worked out a long, long time ago, uh, particularly when I started writing many, many moons ago for the Investors Chronicle, which is a stock picking kind of place, um, that I'm, I was basically rubbish at it, yeah. Um, and I try to do it methodically by doing stock screens. And so we set up the first stock screens under Matthew Vincent. This is a long, long time ago now. And we tried to do it methodically. And even then, I wasn't very good at it. Um, so um, I, I've sort of, I've sort of not very good stock pick. But what I will do is I will pick stocks that I think are symptomatic of a bigger trend. So classic example is I, I, I don't think um, I don't think the whole music streaming thing is going away. I think it's a profound change. And so I've got shares in Spotify. You know, that's no great surprise. I mean, it's it's it, it's relentlessly overvalued in my view. Um, but it is nevertheless, it is if you want to play the music streaming revolution, it's a fantastic way of playing it. You know, um, and and anybody who's got a Spotify account realizes how sticky it is, because you know you you know as soon as you leave Spotify, all your playlists go and it's a real pain in the ass. Um, so I, I will play individual, pay individual stocks if I think they're part of a wider thematic trend. That's uh, that, uh, Spotify is interesting. I'm just thinking about uh, something you wrote recently, David, around uh, constructing a defensive alternative income portfolio. And one of the uh, listed investment companies you, you, you highlighted was Hypnosis, so which is uh, the music royalties fund and which is very much also playing or well, benefiting from the uh, uh, growth in streaming services like Spotify. Um, really interesting fund, I, I think you'll agree. But I, I just wanted to ask you what you think about you know, the valuation of some of these defensive funds. I think Hypnosis is on a 23% premium at the moment. Just gen well, I'm interested in your views on that particularly, but just more generally, some investment companies in alternative assets outside of equities, you know, they do trade at premiums quite often. And uh, are you comfortable with that? No, short answer. Um, so I, I I don't have hypnosis. I, I don't. I mean, I have no problem with hypnosis. I think, as for all the reasons that you and I have articulated, I think it's an interesting play. I think it is a bit overvalued, if I'm honest. I, I look. I did look at it when it was about ninety p and ninety p. Yeah, 
think when a big sell-off and I thought, oh, that's a bit overdone. Uh, and equally, you know, um, you know, some of the renewables companies were busily trading down at 85. Um, I can't remember, SDCL Energy Efficiency uh, was trading down at 85 and it's got virtually no correlation to the stock market and economy. So, yeah, um, and a lot of that stuff has now bounced back and isn't trading at premium. So I, I am a bit cagey about it. So it's, it's the same reason I've been very cagey about things like primary healthcare properties, PHP and Harry Hyman's business. I, I think it's a very good business. I, no, I have no problem with it. I just always thought it was appallingly overpriced. That's all. Um, you know, good, steady business. I'm not knocking it. I, I absolutely see it. I just think you can buy cheaper and better stuff, particularly in the kind of healthcare sector around, you know, uh, social care properties like Target and Impact. That's right. It's uh, primary healthcare is on a 40% premium I was looking at uh, earlier on today, whereas you, you've highlighted impact, which I think is uh, 8% discount. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I mean, PHP is a, is a quality business. I'm, I'm really not knocking it. Um, and again, same with hypnosis. Hypnosis has got a lot of quality acts that, or quality songs that it has the royalties to. Um, I, I sometimes slightly worry, my, my view has always been with hypnosis, that they buy stuff that even I've heard of. And if even I've heard of them and I'm a crusty old, you know, gray-haired person, and if I've heard of these people, that means they must be really well-known, yeah? And are, are you overpaying for it? I don't know. Um, I, they, they say not, and I believe them when they say it because, you know, they, they know their business well. I just think they're a bit expensive, whereas I think you can buy other stuff that has alternative characteristics. You've mentioned some that are better value. And these, I mean, these income plays and, and the infrastructure income plays in, in particular, I guess they're taking the position that bonds would have normally taken in your portfolio. I did have a few um, uh, retail bonds. Actually, I do have one retail bond. I've got Premier Oil's retail bond, <laughs> um, which basically it must be one of the few listed bonds that I think went below 50p in the pound or 50 quid in the pound. Uh, but that's a particular play I've always had. And I'm slightly ashamed I've got it because I'm quite anti-energy. But um, but yeah, but but that, no, apart from that, I, I had a places for people retail bond, which I, I flogged off. Um, no, I haven't got. You're absolutely right, Dan. I tend to I tend to have these kind of alternative buckets to provide alternative income. Yes. David, going to ask you about another uh, investment trust, very well known, just uh, which has a, a kind of capital preservation ethos, um, although maybe not as much as, as some, but I'm thinking of uh, RIT Capital Partners, very well-known uh, investment trust backed by, invested by, by the, uh, the Rothschild family and um, uh, was trading at a quite a big premium at the uh, end of last year and has derated. And a couple of analysts have been, um, Steve Fall and Winter Floods, have been uh, issuing positive notes lately because they're now on a discount. Uh, it's narrowed a bit, but I think it's about 4%. What's, um, so yeah, we've been writing about that. Uh, that they that the, those analysts' views. Uh, what's your view on uh, on RCP? Yeah, I mean, RCP is usually sits in the category alongside rougher investment company, personal assets, capital gearing, Peter Spiller. Um, so it sits in there. But the problem is, each of those businesses, software funds I've just mentioned, they all have their own very unique characteristics. And RIT has its own very unique characteristics, which is you've got a very large private equity or private business component. Um, and, and it is also invested in other funds as well. Um, and, and that's not true of some of the other funds I've mentioned. Personal assets is really quite more main, mainstream defensive equities. Peter Spiller does a combination of bonds and equities. Ruffer does, well, lots of things, uh, <laughs> including big, big, big put options. Um, so they all have very different characteristics. I think if I had to choose between all of them, um, I wouldn't choose RIT, although I do think it's a quality play, yeah? And I, I don't deny its 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 long term strength, 
Um, I, I, I'm a bit worried about the private equity exposure. Uh, I think that um, some of the wheels will come off the pro private equity explosion of the last few years. And I worry about uh, RIT's exposure to private equity. Um, so I, it wouldn't be top of my list, whereas I think you can't deny, I mean, Roffer was trading at quite a big discount for a while. I actually haven't looked at it recently, uh, but I imagine after that amazing put that they had on the market option that they had on the falling market, they've probably done a bit better. Um, and um, so it wouldn't be. And actually, if you're honest, if I'm honest, where I've got my money is in Brevin Howard, um, their big hedge funds, listed hedge funds. Uh, because frankly, if I am going to play an absolute return strategy, although to be fair, that's not what RIT is doing. It's more defensive. Uh, I would probably go with Brevin Howard at the moment, but we'll see, won't we? Well, they've done uh, incredibly well after some really dull couple of years. Uh, but there's two. Uh, they've, they've done uh, extraordinarily well uh, from more volatile market conditions. Uh, which one have you got? There's two. There's a global and a macro. Um, both. both. You've got both. OK, right. Well, they've both done really well. Could you explain? Do you know what they actually do underneath the surface? All this sort of uh, all, yeah, all I know is they trade currencies and they trade bonds, but or credits. Um, it's a bit more yeah. complicated than that, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that, that is the great weakness of both of them. It's the great weakness of all hedge funds is that they're black box methodologies, uh, and they their disclosure, whilst much better than it was, isn't brilliant yet. And and they tell you which underlying sub funds they invest in. So, you know, um, you know, Alan Howard, uh, sorry, uh, Brevin Howard's main funds, you can sort of work them out. But you don't really quite know what goes on, what's the secret recipe. Um, I, I suppose I suppose the reason why I think that what fundamentally they're all a play on market volatility. Yeah. And they're all and they're play, they're play on macro direction. Yeah. Because they are global macro funds. Um, but they are basically a play on volatility. So if, if volatility shoots up, they tend to do fairly well. Although actually... If you want a slightly left field suggestion, if you want a cleaner play on volatility, why don't you just go, and I've mentioned this, why don't you just go and buy the spread betting firms? Um, because, you know, frankly, if we all think that, you know, we're going to hell in a handcart, spread betters do remarkably well and have been doing remarkably well. So they have a cleaner link to volatility. Uh, but Brevin Howe basically is a play on market volatility, FX cut volatility, um, on political volatility, you know, on credit volatility. And look, I know... Better than any of us do the problems of hedge funds, yeah, which is they haven't delivered on their goods, yeah, on their promise. Um, I think that Brevin Howard, of all of them, probably has a fairly decent track record, and the money tends to suggest that they do that, play that game fairly well. There's always a chance that the wheels will come off their strategies, and that does happen regularly. Um, but at the moment, from what I have, what I know about people who work there, the one thing I have heard is they are a phenomenal risk control firm. They are very careful about their risk management and allowing traders to get too far ahead of stuff, which is where it usually goes wrong. Um, and they're very careful about ma managing risk. That's really interesting. Dan, just, can I just come back on David and one more thing? It's moving uh, on to a different sphere, really, but just picking up on your point about Brevin Howard's performance. Um, it was a bit quiet, but, but there's a lot of respect for what they're doing. Um, but that your mention of uh, risk controls, uh, makes me think of uh, Alexander Darwell uh, and, and the experience that he's had at, at European uh, Opportunities uh, Trust with his Wirecard, with his, with his <laughs> uh, you know massive uh, stake in Wirecard until uh, it was clear that uh, something very bad was going on and he, and he dumped the whole lot. Um, but there's been, you know, me and Dan discussed this some length uh, recently, and I, I took I was particularly. Uh, downbeat or negative about uh, 
the experience. But uh, it's, it's fair to say that, uh, you know, there are analysts, one or two analysts who are saying he's still a good fund manager. Um, I'm wondering what you, what, you know, what's your view on fund managers that uh, you know, clearly their performance goes up and down. They can make mistakes. Um, you, you, would you give uh, Alexander Darwell a, a, another chance? I don't. I'm if I'm, I'm honest. I don't know his, his strategy well enough, so I can't really comment massively on what he does. That I think you just have to. It's horses or courses. You have to understand what you're getting yourself in for. Um, so the reason you go for somebody like Brevin Howard, or Frank, you go for some of the other defensive funds as well, is because you know that effectively they're a play on volatility. They've got all sorts of rinky dinky black boxes kicking around, but they're a play involved. Then there are some man, and, and you want them when you, you're uncertain about the direction of a market. A market is sort of lacking a trend, or you think a trend is is just too too excessive. Yeah, um, then they they have a value at that point. They're not the only investments that can do that, but they have a value. People like you know the guy, the guy you've mentioned, and I mean I sit on a on a board called Aurora, which has got a, a reasonably well known manager called Gary Channon. They're a different they're a different beast. They're 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 doing concentrated risk on trades yeah you know they, they, i don't think any of them would call themselves absolute returns investors um i'm sure gary would like to say he produces an absolute return for most for his investors most years but that's he just doesn't because he has bad years we have good years um you're what you're buying there is you're buying a very concentrated stock selection strategy and you're playing the risk curve yeah you're, you're very happy to take risk because when the markets are willing to reward you for risk you'll you'll get a disproportionately high return and therefore I don't have a particular problem with fund managers making a mistake. Where I have a problem with fund managers making a mistake, um, which may be relevant to the wirecard thing, is where they take a disproportionate bet. Uh, and the risk controls basically mean that they bet the bank on something. You know, it gets to 20, 15, 20, 20, 35 percent of the portfolio. That is deadly at that point, because even if you are playing the risk game, um, you then run a different risk, which is you, you've got the risk of markets. But then you've got idiosyncratic risk, which is just that the company you invest in is just a pile of poo poo. Yeah. You know, and, and that unfortunately, when you run into successful businesses, there's always a chance that that amazing business that you think is absolutely fabulous. Yeah. Turns out actually to be rubbish. Yeah. Because they've not done something. Yeah. Um, and that's that's where the risk controls of a good investment trust really comes in. And people should turn around and go, well, the board should turn around and go, well, come on. We're, we're staking the bank on Wirecard there. This is a dodgy bet. You know, um, you know, should we just maybe, you know, notch it down to 10% or 7.5% or, you know, whatever percentage of the portfolio it is. So that, you know, that's where you have to look at the internal dynamics of the of the board and, and, the, and, the, and the concentration of holdings, really. And David, I just wanted to pick up on your, um, your view on the, the UK stock market, really, because that was um, certainly an area that had, been quite a strong feature of your columns for us and obviously an area that has been um has done badly following the brexit vote and and then there was a sort of fleeting sign of um redemption with the uh, with the resounding election victory at the end of last year um then some sort of signs of uh, economic improvement and and then coronavirus has happened and the uk once again has fallen to the bottom of, of, of the performance charts uh, my sense is that you still think that there is uh, an opportunity there, but it's something that's now been delayed. What, when can the UK stock market start to do better and what's going to trigger that? Yeah, and also you have to be careful which stock market you're talking about. Um, so if you're talking about the FTSE 250, it's a very different beast than the FTSE 100. Um, so if, if we talk about the FTSE 250, which is the better domestic proxy, 
for the for the UK economy. It's not a perfect proxy for the UK economy. It's not a bad one. Um, uh, then, yes, I think it is. It is delayed, uh, and I, and it's for the reason I said earlier, which is unfortunately we've had a rather bad experience of the coronavirus, and I think it's scarred a lot of consumers. Yeah. Um, and that you could you can see that from the increasingly frenetic attempts by the Chancellor of the Exchequer to lure us into restaurants in August. Yeah, um, I think tells you that they they are they they you know they they've said it. You know, we are a services orientated economy, and people freak out are freaked out so much that our services aren't doing terrifically well, and a lot of them are shut down anyway. Um, so unfortunately, for all uh, you know, through a, a combination of reasons, some of them ineptitude, some of them just bad luck. We've had a we've had a worse virus than other people have had, and that has had a knock on effect on the economy, and it and it will have a knock on effect economy. Uh, I do think though it, we will see a reassertion of the UK market's value. So if you chart the FTSE 250, um, no, actually if you chart the FTSE 100, sorry, against the S and P 500, I mean there's a massive underperformance gap. It it's it's not the same with the FTSE 250, and and that's you're not comparing like for like really because you're comparing a blue chip index in America with a mid-cap index in the UK. The gap is much smaller. I do think the UK will do do a bit better, but I think we're probably delayed now to 2021. Um, and I worry in the UK that a lot of the companies that have done well in the FTSE 250 have companies, are now companies that have got flawed economic models maybe moving forward. So that does slightly concern me. So I think it's delayed. I think, you know, we won't see the FTSE 250 push back until probably 2021. Um, for the FTSE 100, it's slightly different because it's a very international global index. And unfortunately, until, um, for instance, the banks know, we know what's going on with the banks, till we know what's going on with energy stocks, till we know what's going on with mining stocks, I'm afraid I think the FTSE 100 has got its structural head, headwinds. I don't really see clearing for, not for another year or two, really. And, and uh, on the US, uh, and tech growth stocks in in particular i mean a lot of investors will agree with you that that is an area that has become overvalued but i guess the issue with that is how you deal with that as an investor because us and and growth stocks are such a massive part of the market uh, that you need to figure out your attitude is it i'm just avoiding that completely or i'm just trying to limit the size of that in my portfolio yeah i, I think that I think I think it's the latter. I think you can't you can't ignore it. And there are some fantastic US tech names out there. You know, I mean, it's difficult to argue with Microsoft, for instance. You know, it's a fantastic business. So is Google. You know, they're they're good businesses. And uh, you know, to, to a more limited degree, Apple. So I think it's very difficult to ignore them long term. And I think if you don't have some exposure to US tech long term, I do think you're probably making a mistake. Um, but I think you probably what you have to do is you have to make sure that you've got diversified exposure, that maybe it's not 100 percent of your portfolio. It's maybe 35 percent of your portfolio or whatever it is. So I do think you need to think long and hard. And I think you need to be very selective about the tech names you invest in. Unless, of course, you're willing just to invest in the fund. You know, if you if you want to invest in, I don't know, Scotch, you know, Scotch mortgage or there's a couple of um, US tech sector ETFs you can invest in. I think iShares has got one. Um, which are not a bad proxy, actually. They, they, they do a pretty good job. Um, then, yeah, so let's take the fund route. I think you need to be very careful because I think there are some tech stocks out there. I mean, you know, we're not using it, but if we were to be using Zoom, you know, I, you know, I mean, it's difficult to argue. As I've said with Tesla, it's difficult to argue those shares are fairly priced. Um, but there are some other that, you know, you, you, can, you can 
you can see in the second division of stocks some really interesting tech stocks that are not absolutely insanely overvalued um but you just have to work a lot lot a lot harder to get to them well and you've mentioned that with your with your ISA this year with IG uh, and, and you said in your columns that it's after the thir- first 30 pound of transaction charges isn't it that you, that you get the rest for free so you've become a frenetic trader in, <laughs> in- <laughs> yeah but honestly i mean i know that i'm not i look i'm not i I, I, I'm a great believer in cutting costs for investors. And, and look, I mean, you know, I only only found out about the IG one because I wrote about it. I mean, you know, I sort of actually had to ring them up and go, hang on, are you sure you're right? Um, but, you know, you get the full range of the, I'm, I'm being honest, you get the full range of the US top, stock market. I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not being paid anything by IG. You know, I've just got one of their accounts. And you, you get 30 quid and, and you and you then never have to pay for a trade ever again in your ISA. So why not? So you go trade like crazy. Um and yeah, I, I have found myself over trading. It's terrible. I'm, it's kind of like an Alcoholics Anonymous session. Um, I have actually gone and put money in, and I found myself probably trading sort of five, six, seven times a month. And actually, you have to trade three times a month to keep your free um, share trading. Um, but I was looking at some numbers coming out of Drive Wealth, and Drive Wealth is a US tech platform that powers a lot of UK platforms like Free Trade and uh, Revolut. And the average trades now are six, seven times a month in America. That's quite a, for UK investors investing in America. And I suppose I am probably the world's worst defender. I probably am doing about that. But that's only for a small portion of my portfolio. That's the kind of fun bucket um, and stuff that I just, you know, you know, I mean, if it goes down, it goes down, you know, but it may well do really, really well. Uh, and actually, Spotify has done really, I've doubled my money in that. Carnival, I've doubled my money in that. Um, uh, I've got a couple of new things I've bought into a company called Lavingo, which um, a lot of the uh, Bailey Gifford people like. So I've been dabbling around in it, making all of my all of the bad mistakes that I've made before. I'm probably going to repeat themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, David, thanks a lot for your time. Unless Gavin, you had any more questions? No, that's a brilliant point at which to end. I think uh, I, mean, I hope uh, all that trading uh, comes off. But um, it, thanks very much for your, uh, you know, sharing us some of your insights and how you approach these things and your ups and downs. And it's been very interesting. And um, yeah, well, we'll look forward to your next column and, and do come back and uh, give us an update sometime. Love to. All, all my great successes in American stocks.